0: Hello, I'm Matthew Bay, a senior analyst at Stratfor, a RAIN company. This podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, RAIN's premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence analysis. Sign up for the free Stratfor newsletter at worldview.stratfor.com. military-dominated regime calls itself a hybrid system, where the military is there and it has a partner in the form of a civilian government, but it's really a very junior partner.
1: Welcome to Baker's Dozen, a podcast series of conversations about geopolitics from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm your host, Roger Baker. Critical for any future solution in Afghanistan, Pakistan faces significant geopolitical challenges. Squeezed between Iran, Afghanistan, China, and India, the country faces tribal and ethnic challenges in Balochistan and along the Afghan frontier, and has a territorial dispute with its nuclear-armed neighbor, India. Pakistan's position and history makes it a focal point for China and the United States, but it's also emerging as a focal point for Saudi Arabia and Turkey each vying for a stronger role in shaping the so-called Islamic world. Joining me to discuss Pakistan's geopolitical situation is Kamran Bukhari, Director of Analytical Development at New Lines Institute, formerly the Center for Global Policy. Kamran also formerly served as a coordinator for Central Asian Studies at the U.S. State Department's Foreign Service Institute. And thank you for joining me today, Kamran.
0: Thanks for having me, Roger.
1: So today I want to talk a little bit about the the geopolitics of Pakistan as we look at some of the changing dynamics going forward in the balance of power in the world and where we see uh some some stresses and some opportunities in the world. Uh Pakistan is in a neighborhood that is somewhat volatile. We have uh heightened tensions between India and China uh up along their frontier. Uh, the United States and Iranian relationship looks like it's shifting. There's the potential for the United States to do further drawdowns in Afghanistan on the Pakistani frontier. So these changing dynamics will have a big impact on Pakistan. And to begin with, I'd like us to sort of step back and try to understand Pakistan as it is. You know, when we look at the space, you can see the the importance of the Indus River Valley. We see that Pakistan is really, you know, four major um, ethnic groups, the Punjabi, the Pashtun, the Sindhi, and the Baluch. And these, plus their relationship with the neighbors, really do shape the way Pakistan's policies, opportunities, and risks uh, sit out there. So as you look at Pakistan, Kamran, how do you see Uh, these underlying elements shaping uh, the country?
0: So, Roger, if we begin internally, uh, you know, it's been 70 plus years since Pakistan appeared on the map. And one of the things that has not been resolved uh, is sort of the integration of various ethnic groups, uh, represented by, uh, you know, four major provinces and, and, a, uh, and a, uh, the Gilgit-Baltistan region, as well as Pakistan-administered Kashmir. So you have, and of course, uh, the formerly federally administered tribal areas where we see saw a lot of the war on terror uh, in years past. All these areas have uh, not been fully integrated into a, a federal model, if you will. Uh, so the social contract is there, but it's not there either, and and we see that largely because uh, more than fifty, as much as fifty five percent of all Pakistanis are from Punjab. They are Punjabis. That is the dominant province. That's the breadbasket of the country. That's uh, the core. Uh, the Indus River runs through it, and it has you know other rivers that are tributaries out of it, and uh, you know Punjab means the land of five rivers. Uh, and so that that's something that's hardwired into the fabric of the country. Uh, you can't change that. Uh, if you run through uh, the Indus River all the way to the Arabian Sea, you pass through uh, the second most important province, which is Sindh. Uh, it's not as populous as Punjab. Uh, But um, it also has major urban centers and a large population. Uh, Lots of agricultural land and and industry can be found there. And, of course, you know, the largest city of the country, Karachi, which is the main port and trading hub, uh, it's also in Sindh. This is the core. Punjab and Sindh is the core of the country. And then you have the two peripheral, uh, if you will, uh, provinces uh, on the western side uh, of of both Punjab and uh, Sindh, so they are the, the former Northwest Frontier Province, now called Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, uh, since two thousand nine. Uh, and uh, you have Balochistan. Um, you know we're still seeing the the the, the fallout or the uh, you know remnants of the the Taliban insurgency in in the in the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province. And the Baloch insurgency in uh, Balochistan uh, is gaining momentum, you know, in has been gaining momentum in recent years, particularly in the past several months. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with grievances that, you know, we're smaller provinces, we're being t- dominated by Punjab. We don't have a fair share in this in this republic. Uh, that's called Pakistan. So there, th- that's sort of the internal picture. Then there are political differences. Uh, there is the chronic civil military imbalance. Uh, Pakistan is what, you know, uh, well, in fact, you know, the the military dominated uh, regime calls itself a hybrid system where, you know, the, the, the military is there and it has a partner in the form of a civilian government. Uh, but it's really a very junior partner uh, so there's that dynamic. This is the internal situation. The economy uh, you know has has been declining uh, for the past decade or more uh, ever since the end of the musharraf era and uh, the external debt has gone up by tens of billions of dollars, especially with China investing some as much as sixty two billion dollars. Uh, in a major infrastructure and and, and economic corridor project that runs throughout the country. That's where we are internally. Externally, you already touched on it, uh, but let me just recap here. Uh, There is the shift that's taking place uh, in the U.S. posture in Afghanistan. The United States would like to withdraw. The conditions aren't exactly ideal, far from it, actually. And uh, the situation is that uh, we're unlikely to see Uh, a, a, if you will, a power sharing er, uh, agreement between the Taliban and the anti-Taliban factions aligned with the United States. Uh, So there's that fallout that's going to blow uh, eastwards into Pakistan. Uh, You talked about the U.S.-Iranian relationship, and we know that the Biden administration wants to revive some form of the old nuclear deal and perhaps improve upon it. Uh, We just have to wait and see how that plays itself out, uh, but nonetheless, you know, Iran uh, is part of a broader geosectarian dynamic where, you know, uh, other countries in, in the region, particularly the Gulf Arab states, uh, especially Saudi Arabia, uh, is not happy to see Iran being rehabilitated. Uh, there are Turks who have a say in this as well. And so this, the, the Iranian relationship and how Iran plays itself out uh, is also really, really Uh, Uncertain. Uh, The biggest neighbor of uh, is India, with which you know there's a historic rivalry, several wars, and we have a government that's uh, a a right-wing internationalist government uh, that's particularly taken an anti-Pakistan stance. Relations are you know at their lowest point uh, that they have been since the two countries uh, emerged out of the partition of British India. Uh, And then there is China. China is now heavily invested in Pakistan, as I mentioned, with tens of billions of dollars of uh, investments in infrastructure and transportation projects. Uh, And um, Pakistan is going to essentially be one of those players uh, in the world where the U.S.-China competition plays itself out, particularly as the United States aligns more closer with India to counterbalance China. And so, I think that Pakistan—it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that it's probably the most sandwiched country between China and the United States.
1: Yeah. So, so when we look at Pakistan, they—they they seem to be—they have an a, as as you note, they're not fully integrated internally, which creates vulnerabilities and challenges, um, and they're surrounded by uh, a neighborhood where in in the current context they don't seem to exert a lot of direct uh proactive influence um in the past obviously we saw a fairly strong amount of pakistani influence into afghanistan um in the the but these days not as much uh active uh role they're they're drawn inward um as they're looking at this they they've also been struggling over the last few decades with trying to find a way to overcome that uh, civil military balance and and there had been some some moves to try to move uh well beyond it um you know empowering the court system things of that sort we We may have seen some slippage along those lines since then, but how important then in in Pakistan's position are its relationships with those two big powers, China and the United states, and that that somewhat contentious dynamic between them. China, obviously, is the one that's now doing most of the infrastructure investment. But in some ways, that investment is starting to draw the ire of uh, Baluch uh, uh, rebels um, as it's moving through their territory. Uh, The United States has traditionally played a stronger uh, role there, uh, but more on the military side than the economic and investment side. Uh, That may be waning as the United States is looking at uh, increasing its relationship with India. And if U.S. relations with Iran ease, that potentially frees India to to reaccelerate some of its own outreach to Iran and effectively encircle Pakistan. So how do we see Pakistan being able to balance these distant powers, the United States and China and the near power of India and Iran at the same time?
0: So let me uh, first unpack the triangular relationship between uh, the U.S., Pakistan and China. So, um, you know, if the Pakistanis had their way, they would want to be able to have best of both worlds. Uh, they want to be able to have a very strong and close relationship with the United States and at the same time have a, a very strong and close relationship with the Chinese. Uh, but in the real world that's not possible Uh, and a lot of it has to do with uh, the situation in Pakistan Um, US aid to Pakistan has been historically uh, significant uh, both civil and military aid over the decades especially post 9-11 there are estimates as much as 22 billion dollars were given to Pakistan uh, after it joined the war on terror Uh, and so that no longer is, is an option. The Pakistani's have, uh, mismanagement of the economy at home uh, has meant that you know a lot of that aid has has not really uh, been allocated to the areas that the country needs most, and so Pakistan continues to remain cash-strapped despite the fact that so much money f- flowed in. And the United States, uh, again, you know, over the last decade or so, has basically said, look. Uh, where uh, we just can't underwrite everything that you want us to do. And therefore, uh, in fact, you know, I'll quote former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. She said, you need to raise your own tax re- revenue. And so you have to look for inward or internal sources of revenue. Uh, we can help, but we can't help to the level that you need us to. So that happened. And then around the same time, the uh, the, the Chinese came in with this uh, China-Pakistan economic corridor package, essentially saying, okay, you've got infrastructure problems, uh, power generation, natural gas, uh, you know, supplies are dwindling. Uh, you know, uh, there, there needs to be... We, we have an interest in having uh, a transportation corridor through your country. So they came up with this deal. Now, so what does that mean? That means that Pakistan, what the Pakistanis need... The Chinese are sort of kind of giving it. Uh, not everything, uh, but, or, you know, not, not even close, but nonetheless, they're taking care of the basic infrastructure problems. Uh, and once they're done, you know, the hope is that then Pakistan can build upon that. That's something that they have to work with the Chinese. There's, there's, they, they have to make concessions. Uh, and China has been, you know, historically a very close ally of the Pakistanis. Uh, and then and, and, and vice versa so then that's then the question is how does the United States look upon that? Uh, the United States has two views uh, as far as I can tell. The first view is very short term uh, it 's not in the interest of the United States to see Pakistan slip further, and therefore and it, and it doesn 't want to invest money, and therefore, if the chinese are investing that money and stabilizing the Pakistani state, meeting some of their needs, well, then that's a good thing uh, in the short term, uh, especially as you know uh, the United States is withdrawing from Afghanistan. The last thing it wants is a weaker Pakistan. Uh, it would like Pakistan to sort of contain uh, a post-American Afghanistan to the extent that it can. Uh, so there is that short term. But in the long run, uh, the Americans also don't want the Chinese to use Pakistan Uh, To challenge U.S. interests, Uh, and therefore that brings the the Americans in closer cooperation with Pakistan's historic rival, India. Uh, We recently had Pacific Command being renamed as Indo-Pacific Command. It's a a significant move to highlight on the part of the Pentagon to say that you know we're going to be working far more closer with the Indians. There's a secretary former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper and uh, outgoing Secretary of State Michael Pompeo both went to New Delhi in December and uh, you know signed a, an agreement uh, on sharing geospatial intelligence. So there's an, an increase in u.s Indian relationship that's worrisome for the Pakistanis. Now uh, at the same time that the, this is happening, the Chinese have begun to put pressure on India, and we saw a little bit of that last June, and it continues with the uh, you know the the push on the line of actual control in uh, uh, in Indian Kashmir, and essentially the Chinese are doing uh, are working with Pakistan, pressing the Indians, and signaling to the United States that you know uh, you'll have to contend with our presence in this region. We're regional power. You are, quote-unquote, extra regional power. So, uh, you know, this is, this is the way it's going to play out here. And therefore, you know, that leaves Pakistan with very few options. So the more the, the Chinese press on India, the more the U.S. Go, grows closer to India. Pakistan is without options. It's caught in the middle. Now, as far as the Iranian thing is concerned, that's going to, you know, further complicate matters, as you said, that look, and we at the Center for Global Policy recently published a, uh, a uh, terrain assessment on this, looking at how India is basically waiting for the US and the Iranians to figure out their relationship so that the Indians can uh, have a, a strategic relationship Uh, trade relationship with with Iran, using Iran, not just to trade with Iran, but also as a corridor to Afghanistan and Central Asia. Uh, That obviously is something that the Pakistanis look at and say, you know, that's problematic, deeply problematic. And at a time when the Chinese and the Pakistanis are building the port of Gawadar, the Indians and the Iranians want to build another port not too far from Gawadar, inside the Persian Gulf. Uh, called uh, Shah Bihar. And so there's a lot of tension, long-term tension, long-term uh, strategic problems that the Pakistanis uh, somehow have to deal with. Hold that thought a moment. We'll be right back.
1: Stratfor Worldview is Rain's premier geopolitical publication and a go-to source for diplomats, businesses, professionals, and individuals around the world. The real-time challenges of living in an increasingly interconnected world have rarely been on display as clearly as they have over the past year. Together, Stratfor and Rain provide tools and intelligence to help you efficiently stay ahead of emerging risks, identify opportunities, and get a more complete view of the world. If you like what you heard today and would like to know more about Stratfor Worldview, consider signing up for our free newsletter. You can find details at worldview.stratfor.com. That's worldview.stratfor.com. Now, let's get back to the interview. You know, in in the Cold War, Pakistan became critical for U.S. uh, strategy in containing the Soviets. India sought to play a non-aligned role. Pakistan, as the Soviets started pushing down into Afghanistan, and the fear was that they were going to find some outlet to the sea, which is also, you know, the old British fear constantly with dealing with the uh, the Russian Empire, was that fear of the Russians pushing to the sea. Pakistan became critical in that U.S. counter. Post-Cold War, that significance uh, of Pakistan as a role faded rapidly, and we saw the U.S. make that pretty big shift towards trying to step up relations with India, particularly economic relations with India. 9/11 obviously raised Pakistan's stature back up, but as the U.S. has been trying to get out of Afghanistan, that that significance of Pakistan for the United States has waned. It doesn't disappear entirely, but it's waned. I'd like to bring one more thought into this dynamic, um, and that is, for for lack of a better word, talking about the, uh, the the so-called Islamic world and Pakistan's role in there. We've seen some changes and adjustments in uh, Saudi Arabia and Turkey competing in some ways for being the new center of the Sunni world. And Pakistan has been a place that's sort of been played over. Turkey uh, and Pakistan and uh, Malaysia seem to be working along one line, and the Saudis were working along a different line. Now we see the potential, as the Saudis are... uh, changing their relationship with Oman, as we see throughout the the, uh, Gulf states, this change in relationships with Israel, that there seems to be a bit of an outreach from the Saudis back to Pakistan, the Turks continue to reach out to Pakistan. Pakistan used to be really central in this space. How do we see Pakistan's role evolving going forward in that sense, outside of just their geography, but in that sense of that broader swath of uh, again, you, you you may have a better term, but the the quote Islamic world.
0: Yeah, see the it's it's a bit overrated the whole Islamic world thing, and 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 the reason for that is that uh, the Islamic world is a bunch of nation states with with their respective interests. Uh, there are states that cooperate. Most of them do not. There's just too many of them in two different regions. You have, you know, if you start from Indonesia, Malaysia, and Southeast Asia, you go to Central Asia, those are two very different types of Muslim states. Uh, Even Pakistan is very different than Turkey. uh, And Turkey is very different than Saudi Arabia. So there is no Islamic world uh, in that sense. Uh, There are Muslim nation states. And what we have right now, again, going back to the chronic economic weakness and and dependency of Pakistan. So we've talked about how Pakistan is heavily dependent on China. Pakistan has been heavily dependent on the United States. Uh, But uh, there's also that dependency on two uh, Persian Gulf Arab countries, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, The dependency is twofold. Uh, One is that these countries have been a source of cash and oil concessions over the decades. And then there are just so many expat Pakistani workers uh, in both countries uh, that send home remittances in the several billions uh, that it's not possible for the Pakistanis to take sides. And we saw that. Uh, You mentioned the whole uh, Turkey, uh, Qatar, Malaysia, and then Pakistan, particularly the government of Imran Khan, the current prime minister, wanted to uh, bandwagon with those three countries. And they got a call from Saudi Arabia, you know, asking, you know, what the heck are you guys doing? Uh, And they had to, you know, pull distance. So they had to pull back and say, okay, you know, this is not something we want to do. You know, we want to have relations with all countries, but obviously we're more closer to Saudi Arabia. So there is that constraint on the Pakistanis that they can't go too far. Uh, For many years, going back to the 80s, ever since... The Saudi-Iranian rivalry began uh, with the founding of the Islamic Republic in, in, uh, in Iran. Uh, Pakistan has been a theater for uh, what I call geosectarianism, sectarianism between the Sunnis and the Shiites on a geopolitical scale. We've seen Sunni groups go after Shiites and the Shiites uh, go after uh, the Sunnis. Uh, more recently, the Sunnis have had the advantage because they're the numerical majority and with the rise of jihadist groups and anti-sectarian uh, ideologies, particularly with the rise of ISIS. Uh, just recently, like a few days ago, we had the killing of 11 uh, uh, minority Hazara, ethnically Hazara, Shiite cult workers in Balochistan. And so that's, that's an example of how sectarian tensions are high. Pakistan is also a battle space for the Iranian-Saudi uh, competition, to the extent that it still exists, uh, in the sense that I believe that the Iranians have the upper hand if and, and they may have even uh, eclipsed the Saudis. But nonetheless, the, the this tug-of-war continues and Pakistan uh, is in the middle of it. Uh, in, and then there's Turkey and Saudi Arabia that you mentioned. There is a, a vacuum uh, in the Sunni world uh, for leadership. And it has been for a long time because Saudi Arabia for the longest time has been the world's largest exporter of crude that gave it enough financial muscle. And you couple that with the fact that they are custodians of the two holy mosques in, of Islam and they organized the annual hajj and there became the you know center. And they, because being a religious state, they became the center of uh, you know religiosity, if you will. And that religiosity was exported uh, until 9-11. Uh, and that gave Saudi Arabia a bad edge over every other country. And it was sort of the de facto leader of, of the Muslim world, if you will. Turkey is challenging that now because, A, you know, Saudi Arabia's position is significantly weakened. The crude that it exports isn't worth what it used to be. The United States, uh, you know, is producing more uh, crude than even Saudi Arabia. So the, the value of Saudi crude is not what it used to be. And we have Iraq coming back online after uh, the overthrow of the Saddam government. And that is also taking away from the heft that the the Saudis enjoyed. And then Turkey has been been rising as a power. Turkey has moved beyond just being a member of NATO and engaging in uh, some heavy unilateral movements uh, on a 360 degree angle. I mean, you look at that, they're playing in the... Black Sea, in the South Caucasus, in the Eastern Med, in North Africa, in the Levant, in Mesopotamia. And they want to be recognized as the quote-unquote true leaders of the Sunni world. And at a time when Iran has pushed deep into the Arab world and, and, and the Turks see an opportunity, just as the Iranians saw an opportunity a few decades ago. And so, again, Pakistan has relations with Turkey. Uh, but then, there, Pakistan isn't as beholden financially, economically to Ankara as it is to Riyadh, and therefore, there's not. There, can, it can go only so far uh, with the Turks uh, before it upsets the Saudis. So again, caught in the middle.
1: Right, Comrade, I want to thank you. I know we could go on for hours and days on these topics. Um, I, I want to give you an opportunity as we as we close here. What would be over the next, say, one to three years, what would be the key two or three geopolitical trends or turning points that we should be keeping an eye out for in regards to Pakistan?
0: Whatever happens to the U.S.-Taliban negotiations, what do they lead to? Do they lead to some form of a power-sharing settlement or more civil war? That's going to, have, that's going to be one major uh, geopolitical factor that's going to impact Pakistan. Uh, Two uh, is uh, the bilateral relationship with India. Uh, There's been, you know, after the 1971 war, uh, you know, in 2019, early 2019, we saw the first sort of use of aircraft by both countries to go and strike each other. Uh, And so it tells you how tense those relations are. So can they pull back? Can they reach a modest vivendi? Can they work with each other? That's also going to determine A lot of what happens to Pakistan. And then finally, what is going to happen? How aggressive do do the U.S. and the Chinese uh, become with each other? And then that will also shape to what degree Pakistanis will feel the pinch uh, of being sandwiched. I would say those are the three broad trends. I would also add a fourth one, which is whatever happens to the U.S.-Iranian renegotiation you know, how that shapes the region. Can Pakistan benefit from that? There are potential opportunities to, to buy oil and gas from the Iranians that could reduce Pakistani dependency on, on the Gulf Arab states. But that's, there are many ifs built into that. So I wouldn't hold my breath to it. But that, those are sort of the broad trend lines that I would be looking at.
1: Well, a lot for us to keep an eye on, on Pakistan. And, you know, as one of the countries that's, that's increasingly squeezed between big powers and middle powers, I think paying attention to a place like Pakistan is going to give us a way to to measure the ways these larger powers are being able to shape the dynamics around the world and shape their interactions with each other. So I'd like to thank you for joining me today, Kamran. Uh, quite enjoyed our conversation.
0: Likewise. Thank you for
1: having me. And thank you for joining us today as we discussed Pakistan's geopolitical situation. You can stay up to date on the latest geopolitical developments by signing up for our free newsletter visit worldview.stratfor.com. That's worldview.stratfor.com. I'm Roger Baker. Thank you for listening.